HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, there's there's nothing like it. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. So we've been talking a lot this season about how to feed the world's growing population without completely destroying the planet, um, and also some programs and policies, past, present, and future, that are aimed at helping us get there. Today, we're going to be focusing more specifically on the influence of corporate agribusiness on our food, health, and the environment, both at home and abroad. Joining me on the line to do so is Tim Wise, whose new book is titled Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food. Tim, welcome to the show. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you are a senior researcher at the Small Planet Institute and a senior research fellow at Tufts Global Development and Environment Institute. Can you seem a that seems like a lot? <laughs> seems like you've got a lot of a lot of roles. Um, but can you uh, just tell us about the work that you do at both institutions? Yeah, um, at Tufts at the Global Development and Environment Institute, I was a I was a senior researcher there on staff for eighteen years. Um, um, helped found the Globalization and Sustainable Development Program, which did a lot of work on globalization. Economic, it's an economic research institute, and we did a lot of a lot of research on globalization, and particularly how NAFTA's impact on Mexico. Mm-hmm. 
And then um, when I set out on this project to write this book, which is not an academic book, I very much wanted to be in a non-academic setting working with people who were um, experienced at writing non-academic books, and you couldn't find anyone better than Frances Moore LePay at her Small Planet Institute. She's written 19 books now, um, and certainly wrote the one, so Diet for a Small Planet, that, um, that uh, for many of us, I think, put this issue of uh, food and the environment on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, so I uh, moved over, stayed a research fellow, on, not on staff, at, at Tufts, and moved over to the Small Planet Institute to start a land and food rights program there. So that's what I'm doing there. And what made you decide to write this book and to write this book now? Well, if you'll remember, the in about 10 years ago, there was a, a spike in food prices. Um, it was, was a lot of debate about the cause. It was actually caused mainly by the, the expansion of U.S. corn ethanol production in a very, very short period of time, and that produced big price spikes and food riots in a lot of developing countries, and it kind of put back on the table for for a lot of governments um, that, gee, maybe we should not be importing our food cheap from the United States and other producers. We should be growing more of it ourselves. And it felt like a new consensus was emerging, but as time wore on, it became clear that that wasn't really happening in practice, that countries weren't really reinvesting in their own small-scale producers to produce more of their own food. Um, and so I really wanted to set out to find out why. So um, uh, with, a, with a nice grant, uh, fellowship grant to start, the, start that research, I, uh, I went to Southern Africa, several countries in Southern Africa. I went to India, I went to Mexico. Um, and went to the heartland of the United States to really see kind of where is where what is this agricultural model mm-hmm. that we're exporting to uh, to the rest of the world, um, and and that was the origin of the project. So you you started to look at why countries aren't investing or reinvesting in their small farmers, their small family farmers, um, which is also an issue in the states today. That was like right. your primary. That's right. Okay. Um, all right. So let's, um, as they say on Marketplace, let's do the numbers. <laughs> I kind of want to set the stage a little bit with um, just like the current state of agriculture and, um, you know, food, food systems um, data. So the number of chronically malnourished people in the world... Number of chronically undernourished people calculated by the FAO is a little over 800 million. Um, And the number of malnourished, which includes micronutrient deficiencies, actually includes obesity too, is another billion people. So it adds up to almost 2 billion people who are uh, malnourished in some way and almost half of those who are chronically undernourished, which means that they're hungry most of the year. So this is pretty severe. Yeah. Um, undernutrition. And you write that is also the case for many of these small farmers themselves, ironically. Well, um, that's right. And that's that is certainly one of the things that I've observed in what 30 years in this in this field is that the the biggest paradox is that the majority of the hungry in the world, the chronic, the, mo- uh, the most uh, the most um, 
deprived of their right to food are the ones who grow the food um, yeah. in a lot of these countries. And then so similarly, the share of uh, consumers' food dollar going to farmers, it fell, didn't it? What are, it wh- did. What are it's we at right now? It's down to 14% now um, uh, in the U.S. Um, in the it, US. it varies wildly depending okay. on the country. Um, of course, a lot of the poorer agricultural countries in Africa, for example, um, it would be higher than that because there's a lot more uh, a lot more farming still going on at a small scale and a community scale, and and you know very much um, in contrast to the image that we in the United States feed the world. Um, you know, seventy percent of the of the food grown, eaten in developing countries, is grown in those countries, and the majority of that is grown by small scale farmers. So, so sorry, seventy percent of the food that we eat today. The food that um, in developing countries, in developing the, the developing country people in developing countries eat is grown by small scale farmers. Is, is grown by farmers in those countries, and the majority of that is grown by small scale farmers. Okay. So. Um, it's a key food-producing sector for a lot of these countries and a key source and location of um, deep hunger. Okay. Meanwhile, the world, you write, uh, loses, what, 25 million acres of cropland each year? Yeah. Yep. 25 million cropland, uh, acres of cropland each year. And, um, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, the, the unsustainability of, our, of the industrial food system is... Uh, is becoming more and more apparent um, to everyone. We have huge, huge amounts of soil erosions, huge amounts of acidification of soils, which is largely from too much cro- single crop cropping um, in large-scale plantation-style agriculture, and too much reliance on synthetic fertilizer, which actually reduces the fertility of the soil over the long term. And then, of course, it's a major source of greenhouse gas emissions um, in a whole variety of ways. Um, okay, so and we'll so I want to we're we're going to talk about kind of like what the model used to be. I would say kind of like food and agriculture systems model in the states, and then what it is today in a minute. But I also just to kind of like finish setting the stage for for like the issues that you go into in the book. You talk a lot about. Um, agribusiness, agribusiness monopolies. So what is the current state of of the the system? Like who are the major players and what kind of controlling stake do they have? Well, it's a uh, it's a it's a it's an ever shrinking group of companies. Um, uh, the last data that I'm working with and I think it m- there may be some some better data out there um, gives a sense of it that globally seven fertilizer companies account for nearly all sales um, globally. Four firms control ninety percent of global grain trade. Wow. The top five meat and dairy conglomerates um, are now responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than ExxonMobil, Shell, or BP. Wow. Three seed companies, even before a recent wave of mergers, it was three seed companies controlling 50% of the commercial seed market, and that was before Bayer took over Monsanto, Dow merged with DuPont, and Syngenta was swallowed up by ChemChina, bringing it down to um, three mega companies. Okay. (laughs) 
So, so it's a, the problem is serious. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say so that. three companies and control everything. I encountered everything. a lot of these same companies, of course, during your during all your over travels. the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what does this mean? Can you can you just like this all of this the, the you know the information? Can you put it into a con- context for us in terms of like what what is the impact for an everyday farmer or consumer? Well, farmers and consumers experience this, of course, very very differently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for farmers, and I and I just got back from. Uh, uh, a set of book talks in Iowa, which was really interesting because Iowa is is one of the um, one of the chapters in the book. Mm-hmm. I have a, a chapter on Iowa uh, agriculture and a chapter on the U.S. biofuel program, um, which is also significantly about uh, about Iowa. Mm-hmm. And and what was I mean? What was striking is how much. Um, Attention is now being paid um, happily to the problem create problems created for farmers um, by concentrated agribusiness firms in power. They ba- farmers basically get squeezed on both ends of the um, of their of their business. Uh, they, uh, with only a few sellers of machinery, of seeds, of um, of chemicals for their farms, um, they they're subject to being squeezed by those firms charging monopoly prices, high prices, and then with very few options of who to sell to. Um, a lot of the sales are in Iowa are going into they're growing corn and soybeans and they're selling it for ethanol plants and industrial livestock firms um, for as feed. Mm-hmm. Corn and soybeans are the main components of feed. And they, you know, they have, um, those are monopoly buyers. And those monopoly buyers can say, hey, we're not going to pay that much for that corn. And the price gets forced down even below what it would would be otherwise. So so they're in a terrible place in, right. in, in Iowa. And it shows, the data shows it, that they're, they're really struggling um, right now. There's waves of bankruptcies starting to happen. There's uh, people going out of business, and and a lot of um, a lot of farmers um, with no no real, not many choices about um, about what they can do with their land if they don't do what the market the only thing the market will pay them for. There's nobody sitting in. Iowa offering to buy them buy broccoli if they decide to grow it. The buyers are there for corn and soybeans. Why are the, they're there for? Well, why not? Why couldn't these farmers pivot to growing? Well, you know, what, let me just. I'm going to table that question for later because um, right now I think I want to go back in time and talk about. Um, a period that you write about in the book, which is 1933, when FDR named Henry Wallace his ag secretary. He had a view to and like approach to managing our food and agriculture system that pretty much worked. Um, can you like walk us through what these, you know, what his sort of approach was? And then similarly, what were some of the major events that kind of changed our course since then? That had yeah, the sure. Um, yeah, the um, Henry Wallace was an interesting character, as I learned uh, researching uh, that chapter of the book. Um, 
partly because he was he's really credited with being the inventor of hybrid corn seed, which be, really is what it's the first corn seed that farmers had to buy every year if they were going to keep the yield advantages of that um, of that hybrid seed, and that created a seed industry. And his was the first. It was called um, Pioneer Hybrid, um, which then became uh, Dupont Pioneer Hybrid. Um, but it, it was so he, he was a big contributor to what amounted to a problem of overproduction mm-hmm. of crops. But as agriculture secretary in in the Great Depression, the big problem was that there was this overproduction of crops and nobody to buy things. So prices were really low for farmers. And what the government decided to do was um, declare themselves what they called the CEO of agriculture, um, meaning that they had the, like Ford Motor Company, when the Ford Focus isn't selling, it can idle a plant and reduce production. There's nothing like that in agriculture. No individual farmer has that power. So, recognizing that, they created what they called supply management policies. And those were a set of policies that basically said, we're not going to let um, f- farmers grow more than, um, than there's demand for. Um, and by doing that, they took a lot of land out of production. They put it in conservation land. They put it in so-called set-asides. And they paid farmers a support price to try to make sure that farmers were getting a decent price for their grain. Um, And with supply and demand in better balance, that was kind of what the market was telling them the price would be. And the government during the Great Depression bought those grains and distributed them to the poor um, because that was another need in the Great Depression. Later, that didn't continue um, so much surplus purchase by the government and distribution of actual food. But um, but the principles of this of that program remained in effect for well into the '60s, '70s, formally abandoned in the '90s. Um, what happened in the '90s? Uh, in the '90s, the Freedom to Farm Act, ironically named, um, mm-hmm. because it was theoretically it was the Farm Bill of 1996, um, and it was uh, named that because it was supposedly going to get the government out of the way and let farmers just grow whatever the market wanted them to grow. Um, And what immediately happened was um, a lot of land came out of conservation um, and back into production. Overproduction resumed and prices crashed. Whose land came out of production? Farmers, because farmers were um, oh, so the were conservation being compensated programs. to have their land in conservation. Oh, and suddenly okay. the government was saying, we're not going to do that anymore. Got it, got it. Uh, um, and so millions of acres came back into crop production. Crop production surged and prices crashed, just like they'd been doing before these programs were in place. And then the response to that was a set of emergency subsidies to farmers to prevent farm bankruptcies and and uh, um, and a real a real uh, a repeat of the 1980s farm crisis when there was uh, huge uh, bank failures and all kinds of other things and they um, um, and that kind of subsidy regime is we've been living with that ever since but that wasn't the origins of of U.S. agriculture policy people think well, well we've always just subsidized farmers but we haven't no um, we've had 
active agricultural policies, but they haven't been subsidies until until then. And and subsidies in different forms are still in place today. And these are a big part. This is, these are the same subsidies that when we talk about, when we hear like the news talking about the problem of subsidies and the fact that like the farm bill didn't really, the 2018 farm bill didn't really address this issue. It's just sort of continued on. That this right. was sort of like the origin. That's right. That's right. And and you know, essentially, the the important thing about that change if and I, I emphasize this to people I appreciate you going so uh, so deep into the into the into the history of US ag policy because most people um, uh, haven't paid that much attention to it but what's really important about it and re- this is relevant to the to my book is that in so if you're paying if the government is paying support prices it means it's keeping the price of corn to farmers in the United States relatively high, mm-hmm. not prohibitively high, but relatively high. And the people who are paying for that are the industrial livestock manufacturers, right, who need it for feed. So they're paying a supported price um, for for these crops. In comes the, you abandon that program and in comes the subsidy regime. And industrial livestock and other firms are getting cut rate, um, cut rate, crops mm-hmm. for their feed because the pri- we're overproducing, the price has crashed, and the people making up the difference are taxpayers through the government instead of livestock firms paying decent prices to farmers. So in effect, it shifted the burden of keeping farmers in business from industrial livestock firms and others paying decent prices to taxpayers paying you know, essentially ineffectual subsidies. Okay, so in talking about going you know, continuing with our theme of like the root, right? The root cause, the root of our problems. You also talk a lot about Iowa and, um, you know, you say that it's a great place to talk about because it sort of like serves as the model that's being promoted internationally. Can you tell us more about what this is? The, how it's being promoted? Well, more specifically, like what is the, what is the model that we are choosing to export and what are the, um, you know, the problems with it? I know this is a super complex topic and one in which you, you know, yeah. write about extensively, but broad strokes, um, yeah. you know, oh, you sure. actually do a great yeah, I mean, job it's, summarizing it's it. It's what we all, we all think of when we think of industrial, uh, industrial agriculture. So industrial agriculture just means it's very capital intensive. So a lot of machines, big farms, big extensions of farms, and lots of inputs, chemical inputs. So that can be purchased seeds, GMO seeds, um, pesticides, um, uh, herbicides, and chemical fertilizer. And it's a chemically driven um, uh, operation. It's likened by many um, who criticize it. To kind of an extractive model like like mining is, because essentially what you're doing is you're saying, okay, we've got this land and we've got these people who are ready to work this land and we're just going to um, extract food from it or commodities really because they don't end up being directly consumed as food much. Mm-hmm. Um, they become raw materials for for different um, industrial um, processors of food and other things and and um, and it leaves you with a um, uh, huge expanses of um, 
of agricultural land and a really small number of crops um, and mining the soil in an unsustainable way for those crops. Um, so there's huge pollution issues um, related to water quality, which is what I covered in the book a mm-hmm. lot. That's That's been going on pretty intensely in Iowa, uh, battles over the um, runoff from 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 these farms uh, polluting the waterways um, and uh, and soil erosion, which is you know they say Iowa has has lost about fifty percent of its of its topsoil in the wow. last forty years. And they grow mostly corn in Iowa, right? Is it the largest corn producing state? Corn and soybeans. Corn and soybeans. Um, corn and soybeans are grown in rotation, alternating years, depending on the price of of one um, and the other. They they complement each other because soybeans um, fix nitrogen in the soil, so they help keep the um, the soil a little bit more fertile for corn production, um, and that's what they grow. You're like a little bit. So earlier you said if farmers grew broccoli in Iowa, no one's going to want to buy it. Why? Why is that? I mean, this is kind of also gets back to the root, the, you know, one of like the root causes of this problem. But there is, as far as I can tell, no reason from like a, and like a environmental standpoint. I mean, we, we can grow broccoli. The climate is such that you could grow broccoli in Iowa, right? So how do we, how did it become a state where it's, you know, we only have pretty much two commodity crops growing? And this is true for much of the Midwest as well. Right. It is true. Um, It's really what the market is demanding. And, um, and I think the, the thing that's hard to, for, for urbanites um, to to fully fathom is just how much agricultural land there is. So when I pose the question to a um, to a, uh, an agronomist at at Iowa State University, you know, it's like, well, essentially your question: What about growing growing vegetables? And he goes, Yeah, well, the whole Des Moines area could be fed with X number of acres. What do you want to do with the remaining two million acres? <laughs> And it, and it really is like that. Grow That's, more vegetables? We don't need enough vegetables as it is in this country. <laughs> well, well, except I'll tell you what would happen if anybody even tried to do that is you would you would overproduce vegetables and you'd destroy that market too with prices that wouldn't sustain farmers either. Yeah. So it's again, it's a market that's that's out of balance. Um, I think the more, I mean, it's certainly true that it would be. Uh, and a lot of people in Iowa are trying to push for this, and and I would support them in doing that, is to diversify their farms, um, diversify those farms so they're not just producing corn and soybeans. And there's a lot of ways that people talk about diversifying farms there, um, putting some of the land into grasslands. That could be for grazed livestock. That could be for, if there's even advanced ethanol production that doesn't use corn, could use um, the kind of grasses as a feedstock that you grow on land like that, that would do wonders for the environment. Putting land, some land into, into vegetables and other crops as well would really help help the land but also, and also obviously help the diet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that's not so. going to happen. <laughs> well. No, I mean, I think, the um, I, again, it's, it's what the market will bear. And I, I think people just don't, 
it's very hard to understand how limited the choices are that farmers actually have. Mm-hmm. Like, if you live near a city, you could put some of your land into, I mean, I say broccoli, I just mean Vegetables. the kinds of things you, you can buy at a, at, at, Specialty at a farmer's crops. market. <laughs> and you can do some direct marketing, and yeah. that'll use three acres of your of your 800 acres of, of land on your farm. Um, and that could be a good investment because I think you'd earn a lot more money as a farmer. Um, Which direct seems selling crazy. Like that. But, yeah, but, uh, but it doesn't tough. solve the, the larger problem of, of the uh, dependence on an overproduction of, of corn and soybeans. Mm-hmm. So you also, one of the quotes that you have in the book that I'm going to totally use in other other aspects of my life but it's if we don't change directions we'll get where we're going yeah um which is so great and and then you talk about um somebody uh an agricultural ecologist matt liebman at iowa state university who um you said and i totally agreed was you found him to be like a breath of fresh air can you tell us, and I loved sort of his take. I thought it was incredibly balanced on just like the environmental movement right now and how those pot, like what needs to be applied to our food system and, and in order to kind of like move forward. I thought he was a realist, which I liked, but can yeah, you, yeah, yeah, he is. He, yeah, I saw him um, last week too, when I was there, um, had a nice chance to catch up, catch up with him and you know, he just keeps at it. Um, he's So he's among the few at Iowa State University, which does a lot of agribusiness-oriented research, um, um, who's uh, in their sustainable agriculture program. And he's done a lot of really creative research on the kinds of things that, you know, his starting point isn't Oh, how do we turn how do we turn back the clock and turn Iowa into a bunch of diversified farms that um, you know are, are are small scale? He just doesn't think that's realistic. Um, he's looking at how do we take this behemoth, this monster that we've created, and and start moving it a little bit at a time toward more sustainable practices that could also be better for farmers and consumers. And he has, he has a demonstration farm that's that's just brilliant. I mean, he shows, and he's still running this, this uh, ongoing experiment on this experimental farm. He takes the typical corn and soybean farm, um, and he, what he tests is if you added another rotation to the, to the, to that two crop rotation and added um, alfalfa for hay or grass, a grass um, of some kind. So just a third rotation. You're not, you're not chain. You know, it's still monoculture, big monocultures. <laughs> you're like you're still um, going to get your on corn. The farm, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. But that, but um, that that just doing that, he's shown that it would decrease fertilizer use eighty five percent, decrease pesticide use ninety seven percent. Um, de- Im- completely eliminate water pollution from from chemicals in the area, um, and maintain the productivity of the farm, and um, and increase the long term soil fertility because you're essentially eliminating soil erosion. So I say it's to amazing. him, "Wow, Matt, that's a win win win. You yeah. must have farmers all over the state doing it." And he says, uh, "No, not really. Um, I couldn't have. In- I think the quote is, I couldn't have invented a." come up with a um, 
with a better project that offended mo- uh, all the powerful agribusiness interests in Iowa. It's how and you're it's doing something right. It's to think about that. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, I was so excited. I was so fired up when I was reading it, and then I got really depressed. <laughs> yeah, no, it's hard. I mean, it's just, I think he was, he's depressed by it because he, he feels like they've just shown how easy it would be to 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 make a shift without you know making farmers you know without breaking up from big farms you know uh, yeah. you don't have to do a lot um and it, but he says you know so what's a what's an 85% reduction in fertilizer use to the fertilizer company right a disaster what is it to you know it's you take land out of corn and soybeans and you're reducing seed sales for Monsanto um, but there has chemical sales for Monsanto. You take uh, you, you take land out of corn and soybeans, and you'd raise the price of those two crops because it wouldn't be as oversupplied. That would be a great thing for farmers, mm-hmm. but not for ADM, which is buying uh, corn for its ethanol refineries and wants the corn cheap. It would be bad for Tyson and Smithfield, who want that cheap uh, livestock feed for their factory farms, which are all over that state. And so he just said it, you know. That that one's not going to go. That one's not likely to go anywhere anytime soon in Iowa. And it's an example of how you say that agribusiness interests are not, in fact, aligned with farmers. Which I feel like right. you you know this is something that really bothers you. <laughs> Including well, and not just farmers generally, but even big farmers. I mean, big farmers. <laughs> Farmers want high prices for their products, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it. Just stands to reason, and and industry, agribusiness industries want low prices for those products. Yeah. So it's just a contradiction that um, agribusiness is winning that that battle. Okay, we're going to have to uh, take a super quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, but um, stay tuned. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lilypool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Michael Harlan Turkel, and I'm the host of The Food Scene here on HRN. This show explores the intersection of food, art, and design by talking to people who are inspired by these ideas. The show features food photographers, food stylists, interior designers, and so much more. All the players that make the world so visually delicious. You can find The Food Scene wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with author Tim Wise about his new book, called Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food. What are some of the most problematic examples of agribusiness's negative effects on other countries? So do you want to take, you have a couple great case studies. Do you want to take um, one of them that really was, that you found to be the most impactful or offensive? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I ran into Monsanto everywhere, um, which was surprised me a little bit. Um, I did not expect to see them having a an office um, in in Mal- in the tiny uh, landlocked southern African country of Malawi. Wow. Um, they control fifty percent of the of the um, corn seed market there. Um, not not GMOs, but um, but hybrid corn seeds, and they're hell bent on expanding that market share. And they're doing so in all kinds of different ways. The government is subsidizing the purchase of those seeds um, and fertilizers by, and with a government program, giving coupons for discounted. Uh, discounted inputs to, to farmers, uh, Monsanto would hardly have a market if the government wasn't subsidizing those inputs. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. But then, but it's worse than that because um, farmers, you know, in Africa, it's still largely traditional agriculture, um, agricultural countries. Malawi is no different. Um, 80% of the food that's grown in the country is grown by farmers using the seeds that they save year to year. Um, not just corn, but other crops. And obviously that's not convenient for Monsanto. They -hmm. want people buying their seeds. So while I'm covering this story, the the country is debating a new seed policy for the country, um, trying to impose uh, a set of so-called breeders' rights, essentially intellectual property rights for commercial companies that develop new new seed varieties. And in that process, they're threatening to make it illegal for farmers to um, sell or save or exchange the seeds that they've been using for generations. And it was just astonishing to me that 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 would be that would be true. They the the original draft of the policy actually referred to said that it would be it would not be allowed for farmers to even refer to their seeds as seeds because they hadn't been certified by the government. And therefore, if it wasn't certified by the government as seed, it could only be referred to as grain, basically worthy of eating but not not planting. Wow. These farmers have some really productive varieties of seed, and they say, you know, how could our, how could this, holding up a kernel of corn, not be a seed? Um but I go and I'm debating with the, the policy with somebody who was defending it, and I said to Mani that this policy is written like it was like written this policy reads like it was written by Monsanto, yeah. and he really did sort of look down at his shoes and said, "Well, it one was. of the authors was from Monsanto." Yeah, yeah. Oy. And it's like, okay, so they're writing the policy that outlaws the use of local seeds to force farmers to buy Monsanto seeds. It's that blatant in some places. What do you do about that, though? I mean, what can we realistic? Like, I don't know how you roll that back. Oh, that's that one's that one's in that one's being rolled back. I mean, that what I cover in the book in the Malawi case is is sort of farmers fighting back against that, and it's not a done deal. Um, uh, there's a lot of pushback on policies like that, and in fact. Um, I mean, I'm glad that when I, I, I was so outraged by that story that I wrote it, um, and it became a little bit of a revelation in Malawi that Monsanto had been that involved. It caused a furor, I'm glad to say. And mm-hmm. 
some new demands from farmers to uh, change things about the seed policy. So the seed policy is the final one that they passed is nowhere near as bad as the draft that was drafted by Monsanto. And so there's room to to shape these policies. There's just so many forces, powerful forces aligned um, behind them, including and and notably the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yeah, you're very as critical. A, as a big advocate for, quote unquote, modernizing African agriculture. Um, and uh, and that's that's really dangerous. Well, what is what does that mean? I mean, I, I have to imagine that their intentions are not nefarious, but maybe in practice, it is looking that way. And I, do you're, you're, you're very critical of the organization. So can you tell us kind of what they're doing? That yeah, is I mean, they're, they're advocating a whole set of, of I mean, they're dying, you know, as someone <laughs> dryly observed, Bill Gates is a technology monopolist. And if you think that his solution to, pro- to problems are going to involve anything but technology and big companies, you're wrong. Right. And that's kind of the truth yeah. out there in the big bad world. And so in agriculture, that means the problem, the solutions are getting seed companies in there with their advanced seeds, getting fertilizers into, into farmers' hands, even though they don't improve the fertility of the soil in the long run. Um, and but, farmers can't afford them. But why? Um, getting, are, uh, you know, it's, it's all a push to, uh, quote, unquote, the world. modernize agriculture. And, you know, the real beneficiaries of those policies aren't the farmers who get those inputs, um, they struggle because mm-hmm. they can't really afford them um, in a lot of cases. But it's the companies that get their get their inputs promoted and subsidized. Um, okay, so I have one question while we are talking about big companies or corporations and um, consolidation, and I, I'm just curious as you know, it's it seems certainly consolidation is happening across industries, um, you know, from financial services to, you know, media to including food CPGs. I'm wondering if you're seeing the same trend in food retailers and if this is, of you know, as big of an issue in terms of its impact on both farmers and consumers. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, um, it's a huge issue. Uh, you know, it's in places like uh, Malawi, which are still relatively undeveloped, it's referred to as the supermarketization of the um, of the food sector, mm-hmm. and it's in southern Africa. It's dominated by South African supermarkets expanding into uh, throughout the continent. But um, but all over there are WalMart selling. WalMart's the biggest single food retailer in Mexico now. Um, hmm. So. So these huge companies um, then come in and can both undercut local food sellers, so they put a lot of people out of business, just like we've seen Walmart put small mom-and-pop hardware stores out of business. But um, but they also become a very um, kind of vertically integrated buyer of, of food commodities and seller of food commodities, which can, again put a real squeeze on farmers for what prices they can get for their crops, whether they even have a buyer for their crops. There was just a story in the U.S., which um, 
um, buyers, dairy producers, farmers, uh, small-scale dairy farmers who had been um, selling to um, uh, Dean Foods was the buyer of their of yeah. their dairy, um, and they were told that they wouldn't be picking up their milk anymore. Yeah, and they had no other they had no other buyer, and that was because Walmart vertically integrated its decided it wanted to process all its own milk, and they didn't want to bother with small-scale producers as many small-scale producers and thank you, no, we don't need your milk anymore. And that's just, they have no other buyers. Yeah. Um, They got tanks full of milk and nowhere to sell it. Um, So it it becomes a huge problem. What about the, I know this is a little off topic, but the Amazon Whole Foods deal, is that an example of something that is equally problematic or? Yeah, it could be, that could become equally problematic as it, um, as it uh, starts to, Again, the the impact is that what the uh, the big retailers are doing is driving down the prices for everything, and so they're even demanding of the other big companies like Smithfield selling their pork. They're saying we're only going to pay you this much for your pork. That all filters down to um, farmers in a really bad way because um, uh, there's just no the, the the prices just keep getting forced lower and lower. Um, are, you write about trade policies a lot in the book and certainly in, you know, it's an area where you uh, are an expert. Um, are there examples? Well, all right. First, NAFTA 2.0 or whatever it's called. Um, where do you feel like we net out in terms of um, benefits to U.S. farmers and the effects that we're going to have on Mexico and Canada? I mean, essentially, it's the same NAFTA. Um, I mean, there are definitely things that are worth fighting about about the new NAFTA that make things worse. There's nothing that makes it better for um, Mexican farmers, for sure. Right. Um, and very marginal things that no one will notice uh, that might open in a small way export markets in dairy to Canada. Yeah, we for just talked a about a few dairy. farmers, but that's it. Dairy prices are so low that. That wouldn't even that wouldn't affect uh, the market at all wow. in any short in any medium term sense. But I mean, don't you get isn't it price controlled in Canada or that just for Canadian farmers? Yeah, that's just for Canadian farmers. And the the big victory of the U.S. in this negotiation was forcing Canada to allow in some imports right. of U.S. milk. Um, but it's which not is, a, make. is terrible for Canada. Yeah, but. but um, uh, but, but whatever. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so NAFTA, you you explain that it's been in very problematic for Mexican farmers. Can you give us a few an overview on you know what the issue there is? Well, the big issue is um, is agricultural dumping. That is, Mexico used to be able to put tariffs on on imports coming from the United States of corn, soybeans, wheat, and a whole host of other agricultural, basic agricultural commodities so that its own producers um, wouldn't be uh, undercut in the marketplace by those. And NAFTA eliminated those tariffs, and um, exports increased dramatically. Um, corn's the example I follow. It's the most important product going into Mexico. Uh, U.S. exports increased 400%. They were going in at dumping level prices, meaning prices that were below the actual cost of production because of the farm bill and the other you know, issue of over the issue of overproduction that I was we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. 
and Mexican Mexican farmers saw their prices, the prices they could get for their corn go down 66%. So just that's devastating. That's a um, Yeah. And, and that's not as pretty much like that across the board for basic grains and uh, basic food commodities coming from the U.S. Um, okay, so I know that we need to wrap up um, five minutes ago, but I, <laughs> I just have... Two super quick questions. Maybe just maybe we can just get to this one, which is not quick. But um, you know, you lay out all of these issues, and it does seem super daunting, right? And and like, there's definitely not going to be a one a silver bullet. But what are some of the broad stroke policy um, prescriptions that you would like to see happen to move the needle? Well, I mean, moving the needle. There's a lot of needles to move in a lot of different countries. Um, so so it's hard. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, there's a lot of different answers to that. Right. I mean, we, Iowa and the U.S. needs to start moving away from such a destructive agricultural model. And there are a lot of proposals on the table, um, that uh, some of which involve breaking up big ag and mm-hmm. reducing their influence and, and dominance in the marketplace in interesting ways. Um, so that's encouraging. And um, there, and I should say that there have been calls from the Democratic hopefuls, Elizabeth Warren specifically recently, they've been talking about, you know, she's like, I'm going to break up big ag and talks yeah. about Bayer Monsanto. So who knows? No, that's right. And, yeah. um, and, and that's a different, that's a different narrative going on now. I mean, ultimately, we got to take land out of corn and soybeans and get it into something else, mm-hmm. um, and that would be good for everybody. But, but the policy. I mean, what I, someone asked me what, what I hoped, who I hoped would be most impacted um, by my book, and I said African governments, mm-hmm. um, because I'm like, that's a good question. I should have asked it. Goods and they're. <laughs> yeah. And they're pouring good money after bad on these subsidy programs, and and they could spend that money so much more wisely supporting the kinds of small scale initiatives that I agroecological farming that I saw all over all over the uh, every country I, I researched in. They're getting no support. They could be scaled up and and become models for their for their countries, but that's. That's not where government money is going, and that's what I would most hope um, would change: is mm-hmm. that uh, is that those countries would look and say, "Wait, we don't need to. We shouldn't be trying to impose an industrial scale model that'll be destructive in the long run." In any case, and look, we have much much more effective low cost solutions all around us offered by our own farmers. Especially since that, you know, you look at population growth projections, um, and uh, you know, the biggest kind of Boom is going to be coming from Africa. That's as right. A, as That's a right. And, the, and and it's well documented that the best way to address population growth is through bottom-up economic development that focuses on women and girls. Yes. Um, and includes education. And that's um, that's not going to come from from the imposition of this kind of a model. Honestly. We just have to fix everything. I've said it before. It's like just just, just let the women take over, and we're gonna just <laughs> right. we're just gonna write all of these ships. Um, uh, okay, so I think that we're going to have to wrap up. But can, before we do, can you just tell us really briefly what's next for you? Are you gonna you're you're promoting the book, 
right now? Promoting the book, heading to uh, to California next week. Um, not sure when this will air, but I'll be in 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 Los Angeles um, uh, the week of April eighth, and then up in uh, giving a talk in Berkeley on April sixteenth. Um, and uh, and yeah, having really enjoying the conversations that I'm. I'm having with people about the book. It seems to really be resonating with people. Then you're going to take a break and write another book, right? <laughs> not yet. No, no, not yet. Um, I mean, my rec- the the thing that I most like actually about this book is that it is very much my ongoing research agenda. So I'm continuing to travel back to these countries and um, and continuing to engage in the policy. Uh, decisions and processes that are that are going on there and hopefully the book um, is a is a contribution to those um, in a good way and that I can play a role in helping helping uh, uh, shape a better direction for policy um, going forward and that's really what I want to focus on the rest of this year at least well, we're thinking about another book. Yes. Um, well, it certainly is a contribution, has been a contribution to our listeners having you on the show. So I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule um, to telling us all about this. And then, you know, just last thing, where can um, where can our listeners buy a copy of your book and follow your work, continue to follow your work? Yeah, the, uh, the main... Uh, I mean, you can find the book on your favorite uh, online booksellers and at your local bookstores, um, and um, and you can get more information about my work at uh, smallplanet.org, um, looking at the Land and Food Rights Program there, and um, at the book page for Eating Tomorrow. All right. Well, thank you again, Tim, so much for coming on the show, and I look forward to continuing your work, to follow your work. Thanks so much, Jenna. I really enjoyed it. All right. Bye. Take care. Okay. I want to give a really big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our engineer, the ever-patient and amazing Jeet Paul. Show music is by the talented Tim Archer. All episodes of the show are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever you find your podcasts. If you haven't done so already, subscribe, leave me a comment, let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening.